All right, I want to invite you to stand for the, in honor of the reading of God's Word. The sermon text for today is Psalm 50. It's a psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Good morning, all. If you would, please pray with me, asking the Lord's blessing on our time. Holy Spirit, you are a God of truth, and we need your truth. We need you to speak to us, to help us to see what we cannot see on our own, that we don't want to see sometimes. Would you speak and powerfully change us. Help us to leave knowing you better, trusting you more, loving you more fully. Help us to leave magnifying you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. <clears throat> well, lying to promote or protect 
their reputation, stealing in order to indulge their idolatries of money and material possessions, adultery, pornography, molestation with perverse minds, destructive results, abuse, manipulation, slander, just, well, because they can. These are sins. It's wickedness. God hates it. And there are unbelieving non-Christians all over the world who engage in this sort of behavior every day. And yet, the sins that I've made here as examples are from the church. We often talk about the sin of the world and the non-Christians who aren't believers in or submitting to God. They don't worship him. And rightly so, there are many good reasons to, to talk about that. Maybe chief among them is that the Bible does. But we also ought to talk about the sin in the church. We ought to talk about the sin of those who claim Christ, who profess to follow Jesus. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. In Psalm 50, God the judge comes to confront his people. He comes to confront his covenant people. And as he comes as a judge to confront his people, it is not for condemnation. It's for conviction. He comes not to, to damn them or to destroy them, but to disclose their sin, to uncover it, that he can rebuke them, that he can warn them and call them to repentance. God's confrontation is not about condemnation, but conviction to his people. And that's who he's talking to. Verse 4 of Psalm 50. At the end it says that he may judge his people. He comes to judge his people. Not the world as a whole here in Psalm 50. Not the other nations around Israel, but his people, his covenant people. These are not those who have deconstructed their faith. These are not those who have apostatized from their religion. These are not those who have abandoned their religious beliefs and practices. These are those of verse 5. It says, gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Those who continue on in their sacrifices, we'll see in 7 and following. It's those who recite his statues and, and have his covenant on their lips. Some have said, and I tend to agree, that Psalm 50 was either written by Asaph or written for Asaph to sing, to play for the people during a covenant renewal ceremony. In Deuteronomy 31, Moses is getting old and he's passing on the baton of leadership of the people of Israel to Joshua who will take them into the promised land of Canaan. And he tells them, before, you, before they go in there, he says, listen, when you get into the land, every seven years, renew your covenant. Every seven years, recite the law, read it again. Let these covenant conditions of the commandments of God be read in the hearing of all the people that they may renew their faith in and their faithfulness to their covenant Lord. It's like this psalm, Psalm 50, is being written so as to say, during that time, you're coming to renew your covenant. Be mindful of what you're doing and who it is you're making covenant with. Check your heart as you come. Because for many of you, God is confronting you. Don't come flippantly. Come in repentance. 
So we find in Psalm 50, verses 1 through 6, that there is a courtroom setting. God comes as the judge, and he calls the court to order. He gives a subpoena, and he summons heaven and earth, all of creation, to come so that he may judge his people. Verse 1 says, the mighty one, God the Lord. It's an interesting use of these three Hebrew terms, El, Elohim, Yahweh. Why, why does he say it this way? Well, there's one other time that this, these words, these terms are used in this order. It's in the book of Joshua. There are two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh, who are given their allotment right on the other side of the Jordan River, while the rest of the other nine and a half tribes, they go on the other side. And so these two and a half tribes, they build this altar as a, as a witness, like a memorial that says, we belong to Yahweh, we worship him. And it's to say, Yahweh is our God, just like he's your God to the other tribes. Well, they misunderstand their building of this altar, and they think that they're going to offer sacrifices in ways that they should not. So they come to war with them to kill their brothers of these other tribes. And they're innocent, and they, in order to proclaim their innocence, in Joshua 22, 22, they say, the mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. If we've acted unfaithfully to God, if we've broken the covenant, then yes, let us be destroyed. But God is our witness, and God is the judge. Let him adjudicate, the, adjudicate this case. So God, in Joshua 22, becomes the judge to defend the innocent. But in Psalm 50, he's the God who comes as judge to convict the guilty. And we see that the standard by which he comes to judge is found in verse 3, where he says, Our God comes, he does not keep silence. The, the phrase carries this idea of that he will not, cannot keep silent for your sin. And there's another time that God came, and he came to speak to his people. The first time on Mount Sinai. And he came to give them the law, his covenant conditions, so as to make a covenant with his people. And what it said on the mountain, that there was a devouring fire before him. So we find in verse 3, so the lawgiver becomes the judge. Verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. He judges by his own character, his own standard of righteousness, and he, he declares his righteousness in his law. So he judges here by his own law, by the Ten Commandments specifically. The Ten Commandments can be broken up or have been said to be divided evenly or not evenly, but equally into this kind of uh, two tables. There's the first table, which is the first four commandments that are directly relating to God and our worship of him. And then there's the second table of the law that reveals more, uh, deals with more horizontal relationships. Directly here. Now, it's all, in one sense, directly to God, our sin or our obedience. But sometimes we obey God or disobey God by how we treat other people, his other covenant people. And in Psalm 50, verses 7 through 15, we find the first table being mentioned. This is the direct relationship of their worship to God. And in 16 through 23 of Psalm 50, we find the second table, how they have treated and how they are treating other people in the covenant community. So here he's judging them by his own character and the standard of his righteousness in the law. We find in verse 7, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God. Your God, because you're my people, my covenant people. 
God as the covenant Lord and divine judge has gathered not only witnesses, but the defendant, his people. And he's going to judge them for their sin against him. He's going to warn them, call them to repentance. He's rebuking them, but he's not rebuking them for any failure of their religious practices. We see in verse 8, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. It's like what God is doing is removing their objections. He knows their defense before he even comes to them to rebuke them. And so he says, I'm going to call you to task. I'm going to rebuke you for your sin. And they go, hey, we've been worshiping you faithfully. We give sacrifices all the time. And he says, I know. I'm not rebuking you because you failed to give sacrifices. He removes their objections, their excuses, and then he begins to expose their sin. In verse 9, it says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. You've been giving me all these sacrifices and gifts and offerings. I don't want them. Why? Verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. It's, it, the implication is that they thought that they were giving God something. They were somehow blessing him, benefiting him. He says, what you're giving me is already mine. What can you give me that I have not given to you? It's like they think that they were meeting God's needs. But he says, if I were hungry, which it's impossible for God to be in need. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and all its fullness are mine. I would just take what I wanted. I don't need you to give me sacrifices. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? How foolish of a thought. You're not providing some service to me, Israel. You're not meeting my needs. I have none. You need it. I don't. And what he's pointing out here is their sin of worshiping him with hypocrisy. Let me explain. Hypocrisy can be said to simply to be profession without practice. You profess or you claim to value or believe in one thing, but you don't follow through your actions. Your, your practice is not consistent with what you profess. And in Psalm 50, there are two levels of hypocrisy. The first is found in verses 7 through 15. And this kind of hypocrisy, this level is ceremony without sincerity. It's, it's, they're, they're engaging in the ceremonial rituals of sacrifices and offerings and so forth, but not sincerely. They're keeping the external forms without a focused heart. It's not consistent. Saying and even doing the right things, yet not sincerely. It's like they're saying mere external obedience is fine. It's okay. I mean, what my agenda is, where my allegiance lies, my, with the focus of my heart, it doesn't really matter as long as I'm giving God these gifts. They were wrong, of course. They were offering sacrifices to God, thinking that he needed them, and so would be impressed with them, thankful for them, and then would maybe even be in their debt because they provided God with his animal sacrifices. They figured that if they took care of their God, God, their God would be obligated to take care of them. That's how they thought the covenant relationship was supposed to work. Their worship then is not simply wrong-headed, as if innocent ignorance was their problem and they just needed education or information. It was also wrong-hearted. They were sinful in their focus. And this is where bad theology and wickedness often feed off of each other. They go hand in hand often. Because an incorrect understanding about God can and often does produce 
or at least nurture a sinful, self-focused way of relating to God and others. This is where we see their hypocrisy. They were professing to love God with their gifts, but in reality, they were just trying to use God to love themselves. They were ceremoniously giving to God without sincerely caring about God. What they really cared about was being blessed by him, getting God's benefits. So God is confronting them, not merely informing them of, he is rebuking them for their manipulative, self-serving, God-belittling worship. They were professing to worship God, but in a very real and twisted way, they were worshiping themselves or God's gifts that they could garner from him if they gave the right gifts. This is hypocrisy. It's ceremony as if toward God without sincerely caring about God or God's glory. So God's rebuke of their hypocrisy comes. And we see it more clearly, kind of, I think, implied even stronger in verses 14 and 15. His command is offered to God as sacrifice of thanksgiving. That's weird to them. We're supposed to give to God. And he says, no, thank me for what I give you. Perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. He's calling them to be thankful, to be dependent upon him, as opposed to being proud of themselves, self-reliant because of their, their savvy business kind of transaction with God by giving him sacrifices, meeting his needs. From the way they were acting, they would have been very honest for them to say, thank the Lord? Why? We're the ones who have been working the system to get God to work for us. He's just a tool we're using. I mean, if we should thank God, then he should thank us, right? Because we meet his needs. He's dependent upon us for giving him sacrifices, just like we're dependent on him. So this is kind of a symbiotic relationship, right? There's an equal kind of footing here. We scratch his back, he scratches ours. There's no need to exchange thanks. They mistook God's command for sacrifices as though he needed them, when in reality, they needed them. They needed them because their sacrifices were meant to humble them, remind them of their sin, keep them connected to, and keep them trusting in the Lord. But instead, they began to use the ceremonial sacrifices insincerely, with hypocrisy and pride and manipulation, seeing it as a way to appease God or to impress God or even to obligate God to give them blessings. What about you, friends? Is the Lord confronting you in this? Is your relationship with God one that is totally sincere? Do you sometimes give to get? Are you serving so that you can be served? Are you doing all of your religious and ceremonial duties so that God will be impressed with you? He'll be thankful for you. He will even be obligated to bless you. Here's a test for you. One way you can tell if this is where your heart's at even at all is how do you feel? How do you think? How do you respond when God doesn't answer your prayers in the way you think he should or in the time that you think he should? When God doesn't meet your expectations, how do you respond? Or when he brings pain or difficulty or suffering into your life, do you get angry? 
Do you start to think that you deserve more, that you've earned better from God? After all I've done for you, God, why this? There are other people who do far less than I do, far more disobedient than I am, and they get better than me. That's not right, God. It's not fair. Do you ever speak like Asaph does in another one of his psalms, in Psalm 73, where he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have, made, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Asaph, in a sense, is saying, God, what's the point? Like, why am I continuing to obey you? What's the point of these sacrifices, these gifts, these offerings, if you're not going to hold up your end of the deal? I thought this was a covenant relationship, God, where I do my part and then you do yours. It doesn't seem like you're doing yours very well. I've been faithful and you're rebuking me. And the world around me seems to go at ease. What gives? You act as if God should perform for you because you performed for him? Or do you respond how Jesus taught us to in Luke 17 when he says, So you also... When you have done all that you were commanded, by the way, which of us have done that? When you have done all that God has commanded you, this is what you should say. We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. When you work those long nights serving others, when you go through the pain, the heartache of loving others, when they don't love you back, you've been giving and giving and giving, and they just take and take and take, and you've been all the while saying, it's for you, Jesus. It's for you. Do you mean it? Do you say at that moment, I'm an unworthy servant. God, what a privilege it is to serve you. No matter what comes or what doesn't come, how do you respond? And what about when you are rebuked? What about when you're challenged or confronted? Perhaps this morning you came and you were hoping for a nice message about God's comforting words and generous promises to his people, but instead you see Psalm 50 where God is the judge and he's rebuking their, his people for their sins. Does that make you frustrated? Are you discouraged by that? How do you respond when God rebukes you? Will you, as the psalmist says here in verse 17, hate his discipline and cast his words behind you? As though they're not for you. This morning, those of you who are serving God ceremoniously, yet without sincerity, God has come to confront you. If you are viewing your relationship with God as a mere business transaction where you are both mutually called to benefit each other and you're mutually dependent upon one another, then he is calling you to order today. He will not, he cannot keep silent. He's speaking, and when he speaks, will you listen? When he confronts you, will you confess? When he rebukes you, will you repent? That's only the first aspect level of hypocrisy that God confronts. There's yet another. In verses 16 through 23, God is still speaking to those who claim faith in and allegiance to Yahweh. They claim to be part of his covenant people. And yet there seems to be a bit more here in verse 16. He says, but to the wicked God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? 
Like, who do you think you are? It seems that these members of the covenant people of God, because they're claiming his covenant, they're reciting his statutes. They're not only being hypocritical with insincere motives, they seem to go farther and have hypocrisy with outright rebellion. They take the hypocrisy a step further. They not only fail to practice what they profess, but they actively practice the opposite of what they profess. They have this observance without obedience. That is, they observe the rituals, the ceremonial stuff. Maybe they're part of the covenant renewal ceremonies. They're giving the sacrifices. They're they're obeying the Sabbaths and, and going to the festivals. They're observing those, yet with a hardened disregard toward the weightier matters of the law. The moral and spiritual components of things they kind of ignore. And what's, what's ironic about this is that all of the ceremony and the ritual rules, the, the ceremonial aspects, were symbols always pointing to the deeper realities, the substance of God and of our relationship to God. So these moral and spiritual rules, that's the substance of the covenant. They were throwing those out while keeping the symbols. It's like they were saying that partial obedience, eh, that's good enough. As long as we do the religious stuff, we can live however we want in the rest of life and all the other areas, however and whenever we like. To them, rituals are good. They're easier. They're more comforting often. We're doing these kind of traditions. We like to keep it. It gives us some depth, some meaning. We're holding on to history and our culture. But rules, it's restrictive. They're oppressive. This is when one observes the rituals but does not obey the rules because they do not truly trust or love the covenant Lord who gave the rules and the one whom these rules are reflecting. They're pointing to him. Now, to be clear, there is a difference here between seeking to improve on our imperfect obedience on one hand. That's what we ought to be doing, right? There's a difference between that, though, in settling in with partial disobedience. Because that's what it is. Partial obedience is also partial disobedience, isn't it? And if you're content with partial obedience and partial disobedience, that's actually giving in to full disobedience. Because he called us to more. He's called us to all of it. We don't get to pick and choose when we obey, where we obey, how we obey, or which commands we get to obey. It's all or nothing. He says, you either call me Lord or you reject me. If we love our covenant Lord, then we will order our way rightly under his rule. And we will gladly, in faith, worship him by obeying him. So again, what about you? Are you living in disobedience to the Lord? perhaps with unrighteous anger or addiction, impatience or insincerity? Are you content with lying or lust? Are you settling for a life where you're okay with failing to lead or failing to follow? Perhaps you just settled into not fleeing temptation when you ought to or not feeding on God's word when you ought to. Maybe you just resign to the fact that that's who you are. I'm judgmental, or I jump to conclusions. That's kind of my personality. Maybe for you it's pride or people-pleasing or gossip or greed or whatever. 
Are you content with a dull heart towards God and his word? Are you satisfied? Are you settling for a lukewarm passion for Jesus? This is settling for partial disobedience, which is really full of disobedience. I'm not asking for your fully sanctified card here. I'm asking if you're living with hypocrisy and not repenting of it. I'm asking here, are you content with partial obedience, partial disobedience, either by commission or omission? Not perfection, but sincerity, but obedience, growth, and real repentance. I'm asking if you're coming here on Sundays, if you're showing up on Wednesdays, if you're serving in some area, all the while holding on to some sin or sins, either secretly or maybe not so secretly, and thinking that it's fine. Is the Lord confronting you today? Has he been disciplining you with his word? Calling you out and you've just been throwing it behind you as though it's not for you or it's not that big of a deal? Is he rebuking you and warning you and convicting you even, even now? Has your life been going awry and you're not really sure why? It's the Lord getting your attention. And sometimes, though not all the time, and maybe not usually, sometimes it's because he's calling you to repentance for sin. Are you evaluating your own heart? Or perhaps he has largely been silent, as verse 21 says. Been silent about your sin, and you've just considered, well, that's fine then, I guess. And you've been continuing on in that path of hypocrisy and rebellion against God. If so, then mark this. Stop forgetting God or else. Verse 22. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. Lest you prove to not be one of his covenant people after all. Stop ignoring him. Stop shrugging off his word. Start seeking him vigorously and listening to him humbly. Let your sin and the rebuke, his rebuke for your sin, weigh heavily on your conscience. And don't allow yourself to be distracted or comforted until you deal with it earnestly. The only real lasting remedy for a sin-burdened soul is to turn to the Lord in humble Repentant faith. The only way to deal with your sin-burdened soul is to trust him to take it from you with his pardoning and transforming grace in Christ. That's your only hope. The beautiful, beautiful truth is it, and it's trustworthy, Jesus Christ came into this world to save hypocrites. And both kinds of hypocrisy, whether it's this professing without practicing by ceremony, without sincerity, this, 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 this kind of insincere obedience, manipulative, trying to get something from God but not really loving him, or whether it's this partial obedience that you think, I'll do some of these things, but I'd rather hold on to these other sins. Both kinds of hypocrisy come from a faulty view of God. They come from a serious devaluing of God. It comes from a sinful, neglectful forgetfulness of who God is and what it means to be part of his covenant people. 
So don't mistake God's silence about your sin as approval for it. Just because you say, I've been reading my Bible, I've been coming here regularly, and I don't feel rebuked. Don't let God's silence, don't confuse that for apathy. It's patience. And that patience is meant to lead you to repentance. So do not continue in your hypocrisy. Do not continue in disobedience. May it never be said of you that you thought that the I am was like who you are. Verse 21, these things, these sins you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I, that the I am, that Yahweh himself was like you? My friends, my fellow professing Christians, don't be so foolish. God is holy, and he will not be mocked. He deserves, and he demands that we practice what we profess in an ever-growing way. He loves you, and he loves his church, and he loves this world too much to let his people continue on in hypocrisy. And therefore, don't confuse God's command for service of him and sacrifice for him as though he needed it. You need it. We need it. The reality is that we need to serve him, and it is no real sacrifice to serve Jesus. So please don't try to appease him or to impress him or to obligate him to bless you by doing things for him. He's not in need. There's nothing you can give him that he has not already given you. Don't think for one moment that hypocritical service of God is anything less than wicked. Don't think for one moment that anything that, that, this, that, that this partial or insincere Obedience is anything less than condemnable and ought to be repented of. That's our response. Repentance. The only right response to a reasonable rebuke is repentance. That's what he's calling us to. But what does it mean to repent? It means to turn, to change, to change course. So if you're going away from God in disobedience, turn, change course, and go toward him, following his path. Verse 23, to the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. That's repentance. When you start going your way, instead say, God, I'm going to order my way rightly according to your ways coming back toward you. Practically following his word back to him. That's repentance. So repent. Don't be satisfied with insincere or partial obedience. Don't be content with hypocrisy. As soon as you see it, repent of it. Hate it and turn from it. Practically, I love verse 22. I think this is the beginning step of repentance when he says, mark this. That's the first step in repentance. It means to soberly take to heart God's serious warning. It means to carefully consider his confronting rebuke for your sin. It means to humbly let God's words weigh heavily on you with full conviction. Don't try to wiggle out underneath it. Don't excuse it. Don't try to self-medicate so that you can somehow feel better about your sin because I feel awful and ashamed. Don't run from it. Run to him. 
Marking this is the opposite of forgetting God. Mark this, then, you who forget God. Remember him. It's the opposite of hating his discipline and casting off his word. So don't hate, don't despise when the Lord rebukes you. Don't cast his word aside. Seek him, go into it, lean into his word. Let it convict you. Let it weigh heavily on you. Let it lead you down the path of obedience to repentance toward him. But maybe you say, but what if I'm not currently living in unrepentance? I, I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm not living in open rebellion. Well, then praise God for his grace and how he's been working in your life. Your response is then to remember. Instead of being one of those who forget God, remember him. Actively seek to remember him. Let me give you three ways to do that. Remember God as deliverer. That's what it says in verse 15. Call upon me, I will deliver you. If you continue on in your sin, there will be none to deliver you. Verse 22. If you order your way rightly, I will deliver you. I will show you the salvation of God. God is Savior. How should you respond? How do you remember God as deliverer? You thank him for it. All the ways he has protected you, all the ways he's provided you for you, all the ways he has delivered you from your own foolishness and sinful destructiveness. Thank him for it. You have not done it yourself. He has blessed you. He's forgiven you. He has saved you. He has even rebuked you, keeping you on his path. So thank him for it. Offer to him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Remember God as deliverer by thanking him, but also by calling out to him. Call out upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. Remember that you cannot save yourself. You cannot deliver yourself from all of the world's problems, especially your own sinfulness. So call out to me. You're dependent. Act like it. Pray to me in faith. That's how we glorify him, not by meeting God's needs, but by trusting him to meet ours, to be our deliverer. Remember God as deliverer. Number two, remember God as covenant Lord. He's the covenant Lord. It's not like we go, all right, we're in a covenant together. We're equal here, 50-50. I'll do my part, God, you do yours. I'll meet your needs, you meet mine. No, 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 no. God is infinitely higher than we are. We are way down here, and he says, I'm the benefactor. You're the beneficiary. You receive from me. I give to you. That's how this covenant relationship works. And some of the, one of the things he gives us is his commands. It's his rules. It's his guidance of how to live in this life so as to glorify him. So perform your vows to the Most High. You're in a covenant with him. You have vowed to, to call him Lord and to live like it. Order your way rightly underneath his reign. Submit to his governing rules in his word. Remember God as covenant Lord by obeying him. And when you don't, remember God as judge. Remember God as judge. Don't despise his rebukes. Don't hate it when he confronts you. Don't cast off his word when he's, when he's coming to you and charging you with wrongdoing. Repent. Turn to him. When he judges you, bless him for it. Thank him for it and turn to him in it. That last part, though, can be harder for many. Do you balk at the idea of God being judge, your judge, so, why do you do that? Is it perhaps because you want someone else to be your judge? That would be no good. Nobody else could be perfectly just. 
and wise enough and know everything so as to judge so justly. We need God, the holy God, to be our judge, no one else. Well, maybe that's your rub. Maybe that's your hang-up. You would rather have a sympathetic, understanding, lenient God who won't be so strict with you. Can I just have God as Father, not as judge? I mean, I get it. It's natural. Problem is, that's just not who he is. Again, verse 6 of Psalm 50. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. That's who he is. That's not only who he is, but that is who he is. He confronts his covenant people. He rebukes those who are living in hypocrisy or disobedience. And if we don't repent, he will tear us apart like a lion tears apart wild beasts. We are called to see God as judge. But sometimes our problem is that it's difficult for us to conceive of God as he has revealed himself to us in his word. God says, I am who I am, and I've revealed myself to you, but you have a hard time seeing it. And it's not always intellectual. Often, it's a heart problem. But we wonder, how can God be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? How can he be that and at the same time be holy and just and wrathful, a God who will by no means clear the guilty? How can he be both of these things at the same time? When you find yourself struggling with embracing God as both merciful and just, God is holy and gracious, my counsel is to remember who he really is by doing three things. Read, receive, and rejoice. Prayerfully read his word. This is where he reveals himself to you. If your thoughts about God are off, it's because you're not submitting to this. So read it and then receive it. Prayerfully read, fully receive what you read of God. Ask him to show you who he is, that you may see him clearly. And then fully receive what you read about him, and if need be, humbly repent of your false views about God. And then sincerely rejoice in what he shows you about himself. Rejoice that he would even communicate this, that he would reveal himself to us at all and illuminate his word to you. It's a gift, it's a gracious gift. But in addition to this, when you struggle to see God for who he really is, not only prayerfully read and fully receive and sincerely rejoice in his word, but look to the gospel and believe. There is no better picture to see the, the mingling, the marriage of righteousness and mercy, justice and, and grace at the same time than in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Look to the gospel and believe. I've said it before that when we, we bristle at, at God being our judge and we want him to simply be sympathetic with us because, well, we aren't that bad after all compared to others, right? And, and it's just so darn difficult to, to obey you, God. Your rules are, are, are massive and many, and I'm trying so hard. Won't you just be tolerant and lenient? Won't you give me sympathy? When we're there, what we need is to remember that if God weren't immovably holy, if he wasn't perfectly just, it would be terrible. Because he wouldn't be who he is. He wouldn't be worthy of our worship, and we couldn't trust him to be faithful to his promises and good to his people. 
What kind of covenant Lord would that be? Oh, we need him to be perfectly and immovably holy and just. We also need to remember that what we should actually want from God is who he actually is and what he's actually done and given in Jesus Christ, which is grace, not sympathy, grace. And grace is so much better than sympathy. Sympathy, you see, says, I understand your, your sins aren't that bad. It diminishes your sin. It diminishes God's holiness. It diminishes his law, and it diminishes his love. Because he didn't have to overcome that much to receive you. But grace, you see, says your sin is just as bad, nay, worse than you think it is. God's holiness is far greater than you can conceive. His law cannot be wavered on. But he loves you and forgives you the same. He overcame all of that to receive you as his own. It is because of his grace in Christ that God can rightly judge our sin as wicked and yet simultaneously forgive us for our sins because he pours out his just wrath for our sin on his son in our place. Amen. Is this not good news? Is grace not something to rejoice over? It is because of grace that we are here and it is because of grace that God makes us his covenant people. And it is because of grace in Christ that he confronts us. When God confronts his new covenant people, he does so by grace, by mercy. So this morning, if you are not yet one of his covenant people, because you're not yet trusting in his grace in Christ, then your response today is to repent. To turn from running from him and run to him with faith in his son, Jesus. When others come up to partake of communion in just a moment, for you, if you're not yet trusting in Jesus, if you're not there yet, stay where you're at. Ask God to open your eyes to your sin. Don't throw it off. Don't cast off his words. Don't hate his discipline, his judgment. Receive it. Receive it, repent, and trust in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. Come and talk to me afterwards, or another pastor, or another Christian, somebody around you to tell you more. You can put it on a connection card. You want somebody else to talk with you this week? We would love to. And if you are one of his covenant people today, then in just a moment, you can exit to your left. Come up to one of these tables and grab the communion elements with the gluten-free to the far left here. You can go back to your seat to the right and you can partake of communion there. But before you do so, I want to ask you to do two things. First, stay where you are. Don't get up and come to take communion right away. Ask the Lord to evaluate you. Ask the Lord to try you, to test you, to show you your heart. Don't be afraid of it. This is how he loves his people. This is how he keeps us ordering our way rightly so that he will give us the fullness of his salvation. So stay where you are and pray. Ask the Lord to reveal you to you, your sin. And then confess it to him. And then commit to walk in repentance of turning toward him. And when, whenever you're ready, the second thing I want you to do is come rejoicing in that grace. 
that he forgives us, that he grants us not only pardon, but power to change. He doesn't just call us out. He calls us forth and he says, I will enable you to do it. So walk in the light and run from the darkness. Rejoice in the grace of God in Christ toward sinners like you. No, toward you, his covenant people. Praise him for his rebuke, his confrontation, his conviction. Praise him for his forgiveness. Praise him for his transforming power. All of this, praise him for his grace in Christ who lived and died and rose again and is coming again for us. And if you want, if you want to be prayed for, I'll be standing here in front. Pastor Steve, you'll be in the back and standing. If you want us to pray with you about anything, whether you're taking communion or not, when you are ready and only when you are ready, you may come.